0: Welcome back to Art Matters, the podcast for artists. I'm particularly excited about today's episode with the artist T.L. Celine. Now prepare yourself for an epic conversation, recorded over two separate studio visits and subsequently over four hours of material. In light of this, I've edited the conversation down into three parts, or three episodes, which will come out weekly until complete, unlike the usual bi-weekly format of the show. In episode one, today, we get into TL's painting process and his background and education. In episode two, next week, we talk about his family, his explosive early career success, and the challenges that followed the art market crash when he was forced to uh, seek out adjunct teaching opportunities wherever he could, move frequently, and often on his own. And finally, episode three, where I pepper him with anything else that I might have forgotten, as many questions as I could about his current painting ideology and focus. Also collaging, Obi Dick, and a bunch of other things. I'm extremely proud of this interview and very thankful for my guest for his patience and his willingness to share so much of his life with me and the Art Matters listeners. T.L. Celine was born in Fargo, North Dakota in 1949, tenured professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for over 25 years, just recently retired, and in that time he's had more than 40 solo exhibitions. He's shown at the Whitney Biennial, received the Joan Mitchell Fellowship, and a million other things. Currently, he's represented by the Tory Foliard Gallery in Milwaukee. T.L.'s work is represented in numerous public collections, including the Whitney Museum of Art the Art Institute of Chicago, the Walker Art Center, the Metropolitan Museum, the Tate Modern, the Smithsonian, and many, many more. Enjoy the following conversation with the artist T.L. Celine. I want to talk about the paintings. We'll start here with what's in the studio now and then we can go back a bit. But yeah, let's just start easy. Three paintings on the wall sort of around me. Um uh I'll make assumptions that they're all in process. Maybe I'm wrong about it. I'll also make the assumption that you're working on them all at once or, you know, back and forth and back and forth. You hit me right there. Accurate, not accurate.
1: Um, partially accurate. Okay. Um, the painting in the middle mm-hmm. is, was made in 2021. Interesting. And uh, the painting immediately behind you is, is finished, but it's the last painting I've finished, um, currently. And, um, this, this painting with the green cat head, um, that's in process.
0: Why do you have a painting from 2021 on the wall? Is that pretty well, normal for you to have it at work?
1: Well, I tend to make, make one painting at a time. Really? Yeah. Okay. And I usually work on it start to finish. Oh. Huh. And, um, yeah, it, recently, in the last couple of years, I started to have, like, a side project of smaller paintings oh. that I work on at home at night to bring it back to the studio, work on it when I'm waiting for paint to dry so that I can – you know, build layers. Um, And um, so, you know, I, I get a mix of, of paintings and process and laying out smaller paintings, a string of smaller paintings, like half a dozen of them Mm -hmm. and just sort of see, I'm interested in like, is what's here, you know, what is this stuff? Um, Does it seem like there's a thematic consistency you know to it albeit non intentional no intentional thematic consistency, just intuitive is that uh, thematic consistency
0: is that where some ideas go to gestate like are some of those small paintings then going to be seen perhaps in a year or two as big paintings It's entirely possible, oh, yeah
1: okay, yeah um I mean I think the chemistry of how I work in the studio is is changing all the time
0: you know is what I'm so curious to get into more like how because for me chemistry also changes in the studio from year to year or every six months or and sometimes I talk about it in terms of what's bringing me joy and what feels like labor but then looking back at my I've been painting pretty seriously for about 10 years and I'm so curious how the chemistry has changed for you over that amount of time And maybe compared to the old days too
1: well, I think it's very simple to explain you know because I think there's basically three phases okay. of my you know career there's the there's the career before I began teaching mm. uh, or having a full-time teaching job, a tenure track teaching job okay. here at the at the university um, during those early years, I had zero idea what a painting was going to, uh, what the outcome of working on a painting was going to be. Really, when I started, yeah, I mean, to me, the whole thing was was this challenge, you know, mm. of facing this blankness, this, this emptiness mm. of the of the canvas, and trying to uh, how do I how do I invest myself into that space, you know, how does how does that space start to Speak for me, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, In which case, how do I start? Um, And so, how do I start? How do I make the next move? How does one thing build on top of another um, until I get to some point where I feel like the like I'm looking at uh, let's let's say a brain tissue sample from me, you know. so it was all intuitive, really. Sometimes I'd, sometimes I'd stare into like the emptiness of this, of the canvas and I'd start to see an image. Um, and this sort of bothered me at the time because it's how close this is this hearing voices? You know, am I starting to become schizophrenic? You know, uh, which I, I don't think I did. Um, but anyway, I could sort of see this. Ghostly line that made a shape, and I thought, well, that's this, is a, before, that's a,
0: this is before any paint touches the canvas. You're yeah. just looking at a white white surface. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, so, it, well, that must be there. Must be something to that. Why am I conjuring that? You know, and and so I would just sort of almost feel like I was following the line around the canvas with the first first move, and you know, and then once that first move was made, you know, everything else becomes reactive and, and provocative and or insinuating and uh, and you start to build something from this, like, aggregate of, you know, experience, memory, immediacy, uh, art historical reference, uh, popular cultural Uh, vibrations you know all these all these things and to me i was sort of interested in the eclecticism of that i didn't really see too many people working that way Mm -hmm. you know when i first started say 80s you know Mm -hmm. the early 80s so i was just sort of fascinated with the magic that was occurring that would that would bring me from the beginning of the painting to the end of the painting. Mm. And how did I deal with that? What did I reject? What did I keep? What was causing me to reject uh, information I put into a a painting. And, you know, I realized that painting for me was operating on a a sort of level of of self respect. Um, I mean, I'd grown up in a very loving family, but but there were always comments, or you know, like my dad would always call me a knucklehead. You know, like uh, you're thoughtless, you're not thinking. You know, a right? Your your ideas are all fucked up. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, you know, I went through testing in in school and I had deficiencies in, in school that I had to, that I had to address during summer schools and. You know, I took I had this urge to be a, you know, growing up, I thought, well, I want, I'd like to be a lawyer or a doctor. And I think when I was in eighth grade, I took a placement test mm-hmm. for occupation, you know, future occupations. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, suggestion that I got back was that I um, that I, co- I become a forest ranger or a shepherd
0: Shepherd's not bad. I can think of one very famous shepherd in 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 history. You know?
1: <laughs> of course, but you know, I had never never expressed any interest in livestock. Yeah, you know, so like, how would this? They must be looking at me and saying, "This guy has no chance. Yeah, he has no chance. He's going to fail." And so that started to affect me, you know, rather deeply, and
0: and. Um, so you got it back, a bit. like self-respect. It's so interesting you chose that word because it's, I know a lot of people, maybe myself included, who have worked very hard to remove the uh, that feeling of needing to prove oneself with a painting or, or uh, yeah, proving their worth through a painting. Um, but self-respect, that seems healthy, like you're painting yeah. and you're finding something again not something you're proving but just something that's there waiting for you and right
1: but i mean i think all of us as painters realize that there are solutions there's a, there are options mm. that one can can take you know at any given moment mm. and some of those options are easy and in fact may may border on kitschy unintentionally you know kitschy or unknowingly kitschy um and others are difficult they're, they're solutions that one hasn't ever experienced before experienced problems that one has never experienced trying to solve, yeah. you know, before. And it always seemed to me that that, you know, the thing to do is to take the most difficult route, yeah. and to try to persevere until you have arrived, you know, at at an adequate, not a necessarily an adequate solution, because I think the simplest solution, <coughs> excuse me, can oftentimes give you an adequate, you know, solution. But a difficult solution that has taken you beyond yourself in order to solve oh. is uh, extraordinary growth. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so now we've got a few paintings in front of us, but I'll throw you a curveball. There used to be a part of this podcast called Studio Notes, where I'd ask the artist about what is currently going on in their studio in sort of the minutia, meaning what's the last thing you wrote in your journal about, what's the last challenge that popped up, the last thing that gave you a headache, or the last success. And when we came in, or when I came in uh, to start the interview, it looks like you were actively working on this one right here. So I'm curious, just for the hell of it, what's the last thing that you were working on here, and what was the idea, you know, that freshest thing? Where are you with this painting? Yeah,
1: well, um, the last part of this painting that I was working on, which was, as you said earlier, just as until you were in the door is that space between you know there's the there's a figure to the right of the of the man's tie and to the right of that figure is is a uh, you know sort of a long tubular you know sort mm-hmm. of shape that you know might be an arm might be an intestine it could be whatever you know uh, sort of organic part of that figure and there's a there's a, a center to it that is currently you know this sort of brilliant blue, mm-hmm. and I've been going through multiple color changes just in that area, trying to decide what it is that I want. You know, I mean, uh, there there's a time when I'm making the paintings where I I shift from subjective to formal, uh, problems, you know? So if I'm making a drawing, which I don't, which I don't do before the drawing starts, but if I'm doing it on the canvas, you know, I'm just taking a a shot in the dark of where to locate the first, you know, primary, uh, paint application. Mm -hmm. And I like to do it in an awkward way, you know, again, to make the process harder. Um, and then the rest of the time that I make the painting, it's this give and take between bringing the bringing the appropriate subjective concepts to the painting while at the same time trying to work towards a, a balance you know something that seems like it might be symmetrical but it isn't symmetrical.
0: Um, do you still use the word "undermining" to explain? We talked about undermining a painting or yeah, the collage yeah. before. Do you still look at that as a key term in the building of paintings like this?
1: Um, yeah, to a point. I mean, I talked about uh, predictability. Mm-hmm. You know, earlier on, like if I'm right. making a, a stripe painting and there's Cadmium yellow stripes one after another. And then there's like a cadmium, uh, cadmium yellow deep stripe. And then back to the cadmium yellow stripes again. It's like that decision. You, you, you read the painting and you're reading, reading, reading left to right, whatever, right to left, left to right. Um, uh, and all of a sudden that predictability comes to an end. And then for some reason it starts again. And I I like I like to operate that way, you know, in the work where uh, there might be two things that are similar but they're not identical. Um, there might be places where the figure is also deep space, and it's as well as being you know sort of the foregrounded um, uh, figural solidity. Um uh so the idea of undermining is it takes place on a number of levels. I mean, I'm interested in undermining the idea of a of a kind of perfection, of a kind of of um um desirability. you know, if it's these paintings on the on the right for for instance, I was interested in i just ran across this this idea, this term came through my head having been having grown up in the like christian church for a number of years one of the concepts in the christian church is a mansion on the hill you know which is where god lives
0: you know no i think we talked about it last time and that even that phrase is like you said that what it makes you think of is what your version of it would be, which could be the opposite, if I remember correctly. Yeah, right. right.
1: So I'm trying to undermine the substantiality, the durability, the solidity, the the goal properties of the mansion on the hill. Like that's like that's a thing that you desire to get to. And my idea of doing that was to was to try to build these architectonic forms that that were part figural, but mostly architectonic, and to try to build a, instead of trying to build a rational structure uh, where you can determine uh, in what order things were built, um, and that's usually a rational decision-making process, uh, I was interested in not making it rational, making it completely rational, making it off-balance, Making it not identifiable as one thing or another, with any absolute, you know, certainty, uh, but making the whole structure seem like it's going to fall apart at any
0: moment, you know. How, how um, intentional? Maybe that's a weird word choice. Is your uh, usage of space and uh, of space in the sense of the depth of your painting? space or the shallowness of your painting space. And I see a a lot of what you're talking about in terms of, well, what is the positive space? What is the negative space? What went on last? What's the object? But in all of that, or in many of these, a, a functional space does exist for me, the viewer in a, in a shallow space most of the time and is that intentional for you or is that do you think some paintings go back further or and is there a function for the sort of flattening and I'll speak quickly on my part is I found that my fascination with collage even if I haven't uh, made a blueprint for a painting using collage that's sort of how my brain processes is I like the flatness of collage so my paintings Tend to use that same flatness, but how do you think about space?
1: Well, I mean, um, I think about space as um, a fairly simplistic concept. Okay. Um, I mean, I mentioned—I think I mentioned earlier—sort uh, of my relationship with felt board storytelling in uh, you know Sunday school or. Um, sp- uh, vacation Bible School. This is a, a felt board storytelling thing. Is it was very common in, in like Sunday school classes um, to tell Bible stories. Daniel in the Lion's Den. Joseph of many colors. You know, um, uh, you know Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. All of that. To, but to do that with on a green felt. Uh, bulletin board. Hmm. Um, and then there were always these sets of figures that, that came with it, so you took about. this, like, yeah, oh, this is about. you know, this is Noah, you know, so you tack Noah up on the board, and everything you looked at was on the same plane, but it, dis- it was distinguished spatially by virtue of how big it was comparatively, or how small it was comparatively. You know, the Ark is a long ways away because Noah is four times the size of the Ark. So, and I know how big the Ark is. You know, <laughs> So uh, that's a space, even though I'm not trying to make space, you know, on its own. Um, you know, what's always interested me is, is trying to make something that was as powerful as I could possibly make it using the most simplistic terms possible. Um, To me, that was a higher degree of accomplishment, you know, and again, a higher degree of faith, a higher level of faith, both in one's own ability to produce something of consequence in the end, but also uh, the ability to trust the viewer to find something significant about that that process or that reliance on simplicity, you know, uh, to convey a story or not to undermine a story necessarily.
0: I think there was a branch of an earlier conversation we had where we were talking about decision-making and about low-hanging fruit and about it's sort of mine and I believe your... uh, perspective that an artist needs to find the challenge and go directly at it versus maybe avoidance and, oh, I had a solution for something like that with an old painting. I'll I'll work it that way. You know, we go towards a challenge. We go, um, that's where the excitement of a painting is. So how do you square that with with the simplicity and not to say they're contradictory terms, but it's sort of like, how do you decide when a rectangle becomes a window? Like, because it's, that to me is a simple decision, but it's not so much that's the core of it, it's h- how it's working in this space. And it might be a simple decision, but the way that that's troubleshooting the puzzle that is the painting seems complicated and not the low hanging fruit that we're trying to avoid any thoughts on that yeah
1: well i mean uh, uh, let's take the window mm-hmm. um and just that for a second um there is no doubt that the window is a trite concept mm-hmm. um but to me it's only trite if it doesn't move to another level It's objectively, you know Mm -hmm. So uh, to me, there's something not just uh, an architectural reality or a blueprint, you know, a a design reality. It's a, it's a, it's a shape that has emotional properties for me. It may be just like the saddest thing in the world, you know, Uh, like a, broken window that's still illuminated Um, you know and is now detached from a structure completely Um, you know there there are ways that I try to use images that are cliche Mm -hmm. images but there's a there's a pathos in that decision I think that I find relevant um um, and and so i allow it and i try not to make it the abject focal point you know of the painting but i try to incorporate it so there are more ideas potentially available in the painting than there would be without it you know Without that choice.
0: I think there's something interesting there. Advice I've always gotten about paintings, you know, art school, is that you want every part of the painting to be activated. You know, activated can be empty, it can be thoughtful, it can be any sort of thing. But I like how you describe the windows because you're using them, you're, by using them, you have to contend with them. So it's on the one hand, if we change the painting all around that space there where the window is, it wouldn't be in contention with anything, but how you build the painting, it's taking into account. Well, you've used this conceit of painting and it has to fit in, which means it's not really a, it's not a dead space, but it's also not a, you know, I don't think any of your paintings are like showy, but. It's, it's neither it feels like neither camp to to me as the observer
1: well i mean in in most instances there they are a punctuation mm. uh, a place that that asserts itself formally um, and it's both part of something larger and it's a thing in and of itself uh so you can look at it a num- you can look at it several ways um, <laughs> the uh, Interesting. The window. I had a sh- I had an exhibition last summer at Tory fullard Gallery, and I did a I made a series of five paintings that were windows, um, and I tried to like deconstruct the window, um, and I wasn't exactly sure what it was about the window that that I was drawn to, but then I. But then memory, you know, sort of kicks in and you realize like, oh, yeah, when I was 12, we lived in the country and we had this barn that had, you know, sort of four square windows in it, like all the way around it. And several other outbuildings that had that same square utilitarian window divided by, you know, sort of two uh, lines. And uh, one summer, I decided to shoot them all out with a BB gun. And um, so, I mean, to me, the wind—it's a way of addressing or a way of remembering something that, that was really a, a sort of disgusting thing to do as a child. <laughs> that I've carried around with me for you know my whole life. Sure. I was a very destructive child at early. At, at a certain point in my life. Yeah. I like now to start fires. I like to shoot things with BB guns. I, you know, I like to burn up model planes, airplanes, boats, and load them up with firecrackers and start to fuse and load, send them out into the lake. Well,
0: now you're picking up for it through creation. You know? You've created enough <laughs> Phoenix now. You've made up for the windows. Right. Hopefully.
1: Right. So, I mean, there's, there's like incidents in almost all of my paintings where there are multiple references to my real life experience. And, and those might involve something that's trite, you know, like a bucket or a, a, a vase or an orange or a, a, a window. But I just, I hope that if I use those things, I can introduce them into the idea of the visual, element of the visual elements of the painting and bring them in as sort of like what why is that there you know or this a decision that's almost like indefensible you know um but somehow build a structure that that you know hides what it is long enough for one to have to look at it long enough to decode what it what it
0: is so Let's what the talk, elements are. Let's talk about that now. I'm going to say it from the audience perspective, but I want is your perspective. But um, the idea of how and how your eyes enter and exit one of your paintings. You know, there's a lot of talk about that. Um, some painters build with that in mind. Some don't. And in earlier conversation, you talked about. That final move of the painting, I forget the exact word you use, but you kind of get an electricity from it, where you stand in front of the painting, and it doesn't sound so much like the, you know, oft-talked about, well, the path for the eye, it bounces around, it circles, it sees every inch, and then it moves out. It really sounds like um, more of an all-over-activated buzz, and is that... And that's what I want to dig into just a bit more is are you building to that the whole time and if your eye finds a path through a painting as you're making it do do you then do things to obscure it to block it you know are you being um are you breaking a a line a path of vision uh maybe I'll I'll stop there because what you want is that that sort of blinding uh, buzz at the end.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that buzz as we call it, or I think I call it a, a frequency. Yeah. Okay. Um, a, a frequency that is made out of all the things, all the forms and all the, the, the visual elements of the painting. Color, you know, sort of dis- uh, methods of description, you know, all of that, all of that stuff, has to reach a point for me where, where it, it, it exists as almost inexhaustibly interesting. You know, to me, uh, like I, I hope to make something that has, the, the, a, a frequency that resonates a frequency that, that sort of, um, one can't escape from. You know. As a, as a viewer, it's hard to walk away from that energy you know, field mm-hmm. um, so that, I mean, I think that that's a goal that I have uh, with the paintings that I made in general um, but I have to figure out how to get there based on, you know spontaneous actions and um, uh, Precise, precisely located, formal decisions.
0: Apologies, listeners. We took a brief pause at this point. There was some construction going on outside of the studio. But now, let's get back to the conversation. Have you always been a painter? Like, is it always... uh, And I know you do other things outside of that, too, but... um, Did you ever have that chip on your shoulder? Like, I'm a painter and I don't mess with this uh, pop art stuff? Or were you able to float through it and appreciate all of it and take the... I mean, I guess you could say there's a lot of like pop aspects to your painting. And back, I remember the first stuff I saw was the the fucked up Disney images, kind of. Um, But uh, yeah, I'm just curious if you if you felt like you were the generation that could take from both, like with both hands, or if you felt a little, um, well, on one side.
1: Well, I wasn't immediately attracted to pop art. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the exception of, uh, marginal pop artists like mm-hmm. Jasper Johns or Rauschenberg or, or, um, Rosenquist. Yeah. um, to me, they were they were very painterly, very spontaneous in terms yeah. of, the, of their approaches and you know the the results uh, of that spontaneity. Um, but others, I you know, I wasn't really attracted to Warhol mm-hmm. at, at the time, other than as like an entertainer, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think that's probably. A lot of that has to do with a certain naivete at the, you know, at the time, uh, <clears throat> living in the Midwest, not necessarily being on the cusp of philosophical, you know, developments in, in contemporary art.
0: You lived in New York for a while too. That's something I wanted to bring up is the locations that you chose to live your art career through is like you have as I remember you spent time in New York City working there and then you came back maybe for teaching is No, that a- I,
1: I never I never had a residence in New York City. Okay. I worked in New York City on a project mm. for the Whitney Bio- 1983 Whitney Biennial. Okay um i had been a you know i had i had gone to graduate school with a double major in painting and sculpture before i went to graduate school a couple years before i went to graduate school i had a very advanced conceptual artist who was my mentor in undergrad school all my teachers there were canadian conceptual artists and one of them one day said, What are you still painting for? The painting's dead. Mm-hmm. I went, Really?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know? Damn. Damn it,
0: right.
1: I finally found something I like to do and now it's I can't do it anymore. And so I started thinking of alternatives, you know. Instead of going like, well, fuck that. It's a lie for me. Mm-hmm. You know, that took a few years. To get to that point, you know, but, but I was panicking and thinking like, well, what do I do? I mean, I guess I could start making sculpture. Um, or find some sort of hybridic state to exist in between painting and sculpture, mm-hmm. which was actually the, the result over wow. the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I started making sculpture and I'm learning the, the techniques of Sculpture of shaping wood, of welding, of, you know, working with plexiglass and, you know, all this stuff that was current, you know.
0: Um, Did you find you liked it or was there something that was missing from the get-go when you were working
1: well, building I mean, that Like way? anything you take on initially, you find it sort of fascinating and it yeah. occupies you <coughs> until you start to realize what your limitations are. Yeah. And uh, so I went to graduate school in, in sculpture at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. And um, I started meeting grad students that were painters. And I really liked them. And I liked what they were doing. And I didn't really have an impulse at that point to just shift over to making paintings again. Um, but I did, have, um, I did have to start to put together a committee you know, graduate committee. And one of the committee members was uh, a professor who was about my dad's age at the time. Um, he was probably 50, early 50s. Uh, his name was Richard Tricky. And he would come into my painter friend's studios and just sit and, like, hold court. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon there would be, like, 10 graduate students sitting around, like, listening to these stories that he was Telling about being, um, you know, being at the bar, the Cedar Bar with, you know, Pollock and De Kooning and Reinhardt and all these people. And it was magical, you know, to me. And um, anyway, he came to my studio and initially he just said, this is awful. I don't know what you're doing. This is just awful. Maybe you should consider, you know, why you're here in graduate school. Then. And so I was, like, devastated. Um, and, you know, so then I started thinking about uh, the work that I made as having a, a very deep reflection of my soul, you know, for lack of a, a better word. That there had to be something that was undeniably and primarily me in this work, rather than a compendium of influences. <clears throat> right? Yeah. So um, I had a, my my first graduate meet, committee meeting. There was also an art historian, a uh, woman art historian I was taking a class with. And they were all in my studio, and I had made these, these cardboard, Totemic cardboard, uh, I don't know, painting sculptures. You know, in a a sense, I'd found all this recycled cardboard, tore it up all into small chunks, uh, drilled a hole in the center of it, poured a piece of poured a, a pile of concrete on my studio floor, took an eight foot rebar, stuck it in it, waited for it to set up, and then I just started skewering like an old. Desk memo, you know, uh-huh. um, device, uh, and I, until I and just started building intuitively until I got to the top, and I was pouring um, shellac over a paint, temper paint, fiberglass resin, uh, sweeping my studio and and you know sort of covering the the piece with the dust from my studio and then embedding it with more fiberglass resin. It was like killing myself with fiberglass resin.
0: uh, If you had continued that line of work, we wouldn't be talking.
1: uh, Oh, not not a chance. Um, But anyway, I was sort of happy with this this work. And, you know, I was looking at a lot of oceanic uh, art, tribal art, fetishes, you know, things like that, because they fascinated me. You know, largely because they had some energy that I couldn't describe. Uh, they were undefinable, you know, things. They were weird objects that just had this aura about them of, of otherworldliness. And so that was my goal, you know, making sculpture at the time. So I made about six of these things, and they were all in my studio. And, you know, I had this long thing written out, and you know, this influence, and that influence, and this, and Levi Strauss, and, and um, you know, French philosophers, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I finished, and, and it was like dead silence. And all of a sudden, the um, art historian said, well, that's interesting, but where are you, you know, in this work? And I, initially I thought, well, I made this. But that wasn't what she was asking, yeah. you know. She was asking about the, one's ability to transform, to, to transport their inner life built on life experience, built from life experience, onto this thing that was a, a static object, you know, and that, that it wasn't just a a a compendium of influence like Oceanic Art and, you know, and Art Pavera, you know, influences. um, That there was something else. It had to be more than just its influences. Um, And so I started really thinking, you know, deeply about that and realizing that I systematically collected things when I was an art student, undergrad art student. I love, to, I love to collect handmade butcher knives. Uh, you know, my, my grandparents, my grandfather's brother lived on a farm and we used to go out and visit his family uh, at the farm. My grandparents would take us grandchildren out there and, you know, it was brutally, you know, it was brutally simplistic living, you know. Um, toilet paper was a Montgomery Wards catalog you know tear a sheet out and you know there were outhouses. houses mm-hmm. uh, they butchered you know everything that they ate they butchered yeah. and so um, Otto my grandfather's brother had made all of these tools for butchering and they you know it was like a, a butcher knife this long with a hand-hewed handle and a just a jagged piece of of steel but they were... They had that weird, otherworldly quality, you know, to them. And so whenever I would find them in, you know, let's say garage sales or thrift stores or something like that, I'd pick them up Um, because I had some connection. I had a familial connection to that in some way. Yeah. So, you know, that was a start. And that maybe I could depict those or invest those, mm. those that iconography in something, and that something would carry the me, you know, in it, as opposed to those, the those, you know, in I, it. I understand. Um, so, you know, I had this idea to, to, you know, I was always sort of playing ch- tongue in cheek as a sculptor with certain ideas in painting mm. and one of them was like the denigration of, of easel painting nobody would touch that yeah. you know um, so I thought well what if I make these things that are objects uh, uh, not flattened objects but made out of non painterly you know materials mm. and I just put them on an easel like a cheap easel yeah and I just refer to them as easel paintings and and so I started to do that and I would get uh, sheets of sheetrock delivered to my studio and I would just like take a hatchet and start chopping the sheetrock uh, sh- a shape mm-hmm. um, um, the shape out of the sheetrock and I would put that on the on this like two dollar easel Um, That was, you know, six, seven feet high and um, I cover it with plaster bandages and and plaster and then temper paint and finally acrylic paint. And I'd end up with these sort of target bullseye like things with a dagger
0: with like a knife Mm
1: -hmm. in the middle of it.
0: Um, let, me, let me interrupt and ask: Was this the first time? Do you think that humor entered your work?
1: I guess it was. It was probably always there. Mm-hmm. It manifested itself differently. Sure. I went through a period of time when I was when I was making conceptual art, quote unquote, and the only thing I did was was um, imagine some labor-intensive project. And I would write two paragraphs describing what I was going to do. And when I finished it, when I finished writing it, that was it. They were never executed. And they were often very absurd things. Like one of the pieces that I proposed making was um, to drive from Fargo, where I grew up, to Winnipeg, where I went infrequently and um it's a one it's an absolute straight line north it probably doesn't vary by 1 degree it's just okay. like a laser and so consequently there was a lot of roadkill you know on the highway and so my proposal was to document all the roadkill photograph it first and then collect it and take it back to my I'd have like a like a truckload of deer carcasses. And this is
0: why Fargo. This is why people say Fargo <laughs> artists really shouldn't leave Fargo. I don't you know, know if well, anyone says that, but I'm saying you it.
1: Well, um, I, you know, there's a lot of ways to answer that. I think the world would be a better place if they all left Fargo, but but uh, Fargo definitely puts an absurdist,
0: you know, sort of imprint on one, you know, developing their. I think that there's something and I know this is general but I remember it was really my point of view when I was a younger artist that something about being a midwestern artist that there's a like a emotional disconnect that um, yields f- towards like colder paintings and less emotional like an emotional reservedness in the artists themselves that unlike the romantic notion where then the painting is where you express yourself it's more like a satisfied dis, uh, detachment from emotion in your painting i don't i don't believe that anymore i think actually the first time i made a painting where like i realized it was me was it seems a little like what you were talking about before was very surprising to me because i had still clearly held on to this idea that, well, these are all kind of about me, but they're also kind of cold and awkward and whatever. But I'm curious about if you've ever found that like your temperament, um, like there's a type of artist that comes from this, this swath of land. Um,
1: well, I mean, I guess my response to that is, is, is that in terms of the, of the temperature of the work that's, that's made, Mm. Uh, there are there are an enormous number of artists who deal with the landscape, yeah. you know, of the Midwest, northern Midwest especially, mm-hmm. because it's so. Uh, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna use an outsider's term and mm-hmm. say it's empty,
0: mm.
1: you know, um, it's flat and empty, yeah. it's flyover, you know, yeah. territory. There's nothing there, which couldn't be more wrong, mm-hmm. you know. Um, there's a lot there. You just have to be looking for something that's different from what people look for in other who come from other places or live in other places. Um, but most of the artists up there that I know use the landscape, the onus of openness, the onus of infinity—you know, uh, an infinitely deep landscape—you know—as a kind of thing, a temperament. Uh, in their work, and so you know, it's a way to show a kind of power that is in that's in the world that um, that one feels when one lives in that landscape. As a kid, I would always, you know, one of the things that's that's such a spectacular experience in the in the northern Midwest is just to stand in the middle of a section out in the countryside. Mm-hmm. You know, and you see the horizon line 360 degrees. There are no trees blocking that. the The sky is just, you know, half a sphere. You know, and um, you feel as though, or I always felt as though, I was the center of that um, place. You know that someone, something, somewhere was watching me and that I needed to produce something. I needed to account for myself in a, in a major way. And that was all a result of the fact that you're alone in the landscape. I mean, and, um, you know, there's a lot of instincts that start to kick in and um, like survival. Um,
0: you still feel like that, though, to account for your to, for oneself. Like, is that something when you when you ask yourself why you're still painting? I don't know if you still do ask yourself that, but
1: yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. For me, it's something that's never gone away. Hmm. Uh, I always feel as an artist that I need to keep making things that push me further away from normalcy, <laughs> you know, perhaps, or further into a direction that opens doors. Uh, and I don't know, you know, sort of where those doors open to, but, but they, you know, perhaps open into a world that I never expected to find or, or never expected to see a- anywhere. Or through the hands of anyone, and um, I realize that I'm in control, you know, of that. And if I want to see that, I have to do it.
0: Do you feel as though you're running from uh, older paintings, uh, older narratives, older ways of working? Um, not in the sense that you uh, that it's bad work, or maybe that it's good work, and therefore you're. But more in the sense that been there done that and what happens now is i keep going and i keep exploring in a way that's more that's not such a um a well-written narrative where well yes last year i was doing uh, works in this palette but then i decide you know not that concise but Mm -hmm. yeah do you ever feel like there's a life's worth of painting that there are there are things you're like challenges that are more important than maybe someone saying that's a TL Celine painting it is something like that.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I mean, i I think I'm in sort of the opposite stage of that right now. Um, what interests me is, what interests me right now is revisiting iconography from, uh, certain iconography from my earliest time as a developing artist. Interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of that has spawned from having to consolidate everything that I've that I own still that I've made into this
0: space. You still have uh, very old work here. Oh yeah. What's the uh... What decade or I mean seventies work from the seventies yeah. here? Really? Yeah. Okay.
1: It's rolled up. Yeah. You know, on a sonotube and I haven't seen it for you know, what, forty five years? A lot of artists you
0: know. tend to get rid of you know, hopefully not burn and destroy, but I think many artists around my age question sometimes why they keep old stuff around, mm-hmm. you know, just reminders of what didn't work, what didn't sell. But you're Staunchly in the other camp, and you're happy that you still have these. Obviously, you're going back to it as as uh, subject matter now. But
1: well, I'm trying to incorporate it. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to be conscious of the fact that I'm going to build something that, that contains this iconography. Mm. I don't know where it's going to go. Mm. I don't know how it's going to be contained. I don't know whether it's whether it'll be entirely visible in the end or not. Mm. But I'm interested in the problem of of I'm interested in the phenomenon of of what might happen if an if iconography from forty years ago walks into my painting,
0: yeah,
1: and how it might what might result, you know, uh, from the tension of old iconography and new iconography coming together. Mm-hmm. I mean, this painting and the, pet, the ones with the cat heads in them are examples of
0: that. The cat head was something from way when? when. Yeah. I, yeah.
1: I oh. mean, when I got out of graduate school, I uh, moved to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and went to work for my wife's father. Mm-hmm. And I had a studio in the building across the next door to where we lived in downtown Sioux Falls. And my my father-in-law owned a dairy processing plant mm-hmm. in Sioux Falls, and I didn't have any job options uh, other than labor, and I really didn't expect to have any because I was willing to do that in exchange for having a life in the studio. Yeah. You know, of course. Uh, unencumbered life in a conceptually unencumbered life in my studio. I went next door to look at this studio space. It was about probably half the size of this that I rented for 35 bucks a month, Mm -hmm. uh, 1977 with no heat.
0: In South Dakota. Yeah, I was going to say. South Dakota in the wintertime. Uh
1: Um, Not that pleasant without heat. But, you know, anyway, there I had this easel and... um, you know, I had hauled all this shit from Lincoln, Nebraska, yeah. and at that moment, I sort of realized that eh, I can't be a sculptor anymore. Yeah, there's just too Hell much yeah. shit to, to to haul around. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm going to let painting help me in the sense that I don't have to be realistic with the scale. With scale in paintings, um, I can make up a scale in a painting. And it can be convincing. But anyway, I went into um, I went into the studio space with this easel and you know, started to get it ready to do something in. And I noticed that there was a stack of paneling, like wooden like like your rec room paneling uh, stacked up in a corner. So I went, oh, well, maybe I can chop something out of this like I had done in my studio the last year of, at Nebraska. And uh, so I I started chopping this thing out with an axe, and I end up with this big cat head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I put, <laughs> this is a, a ridiculous story. I put this cat head on the easel. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, I should paint it, but I don't have any paint. Um, I want to, I need to make paint. Mm-hmm. And so I got temper pigment and a couple. Of, this is how what an idiot I was in terms of this is how much I learned in art school.
0: OK, I I took grad school too, right? including <laughs> grad school, uh,
1: largely because it was not about painting. Of course, then it of was about something else. So I got uh, primary colors of of. Uh, temper pigment, uh-huh. dry temper pigment, and I got like three cans of thirty weight motor oil. Jesus. And, I was wondering what that was going to be,
0: All and right. I started,
1: you know, sort of pouring the motor oil into the temper pigment uh-huh. until, by God, it turned into what, what it looked like and felt like paint. Uh-huh. I wanted a, I wanted a, uh, an exaggerated surface, a tactile, you know, yeah. surface to work on. So first, I, I mixed up stucco, and I covered the the um, uh, paneling, the cat-shaped piece of paneling with stucco. And then I drew on it with black enamel paint, just like eyes, nose, whiskers, mm-hmm. a mouth, ears, and these these cats had... Well, the qualities of cats, you know, they were suspicious, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I start to feel this, this <laughs> synchronicity between how I felt in the world as somebody who was, like, not in the right place at the right time uh, and cats who have that look whenever you surprise them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being shocked or <clears throat> embarrassed or something. And so I started to make these cut out cat heads that that uh, emulated that that kind of expression of uh, of being like a a innocent bystander of some violent
0: event. So you're still at this point looking for that um, how to bring the personal out. It sounds like it. It sounds like you're um, is there a moment when you think you you got it?
1: I think you could probably pinpoint it to the cat head. Really? The cat head? Yeah. Because they were me, you know, huh. they, I, that was me. Okay. Um, and that was the first time that there was a, there was a like alter ego.
0: Interesting. And it had nothing to do with the uh, materials because obviously you're not still painting with motor oil. So you're not some sort of, uh, 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 what's his name? Um, you know, you, you didn't keep that, that, you didn't assume then that the way that you made this was the core of what felt personal. You had created the yeah. image, right. the alter ego. Right. That was the self versus and,
1: the... Yeah, and, and in making those paintings, it was all very brutal yeah. paint application and, you know, um, paint dripping, blotchy, the ground showing through, ending up with an alter ego that looked like, like beat up, mm-hmm. defeated, yeah, you know, in some way, or the onus was on that character.
0: I'm curious if you still, in a different way, consider these, your, your making to be brutal. Or if, um, I noticed you're using acrylic. Have you always, you always used acrylic? You probably were an oil painter at some point.
1: Oh, the, most of my paintings start most of my recent paintings uh start out uh with acrylic paint mm. and then transition to oil paint
0: okay interesting I didn't know that no I know this is this is a big jump because we were far in the past, but I actually think it's kind of a cool place to go contemporary again because if that cat head is sort of what kicked off what followed to then jump forward in time and to now i want to ask you a little bit about how you make these paintings i think you said before no drawings
1: um no drawings that are a complete versions of what the painting looks like at the end and of course or, or let's say template like mm-hmm. versions sometimes i'll I mean, I like to play around at night on my drawing
0: app. Okay. Uh,
1: and so I'll just draw stuff and erase it and draw it and erase it. Occasionally I get something that seems like kind of interested in that shape, interested mm. in the form, interested in the possibilities of how, of how a narrative that feels appropriate to me mm. can be built around that
0: thing. Enough to, to get you on the hook. And then you start a painting, usually with as little as that. This is reading into it, but so many of your paintings feel like they're held together with like uh, like glue and uh, popsicle sticks. <laughs> right. Like there's a real sense yeah. of...
1: Right. We used to say um, uh, scotch tape and baling tw- twine
0: okay, you know same idea in in that they're they're just they feel like they're barely holding together, which is yeah. also I think why I'm so interested in the in how they're built because it seems like there's a there's a logic to it like there's a almost a physics to it, but you know again not a blueprint
1: the architectural pieces that you were referring to they when i was when I was drawing that I was just meandering was a doodle, you know, basically, but when I when that, when that phrase mansion on a hill, uh, went through my head, I realized that I was creating the antithesis of a mansion, you know, on the hill. And that seemed like a more accurate result. uh, A more accurate representation of what I will move into at the end of my life Hmm. you know than a mansion on the hill of you know based on the idea of uh belief and salvation sure you know so all of a sudden became interesting to me to build something that seemed like it was mansion like Hmm. only it was undermined by only having like half a foundation or no walls or or, uh, yeah (laughs) i mean there's taking a, a sort of I'm going to use the term analytic, analytic cubist hmm. uh, vision to this this like Rube Goldberg Goldberg esque depiction of a mansion, hmm. but it really it really is not analytic cubism. It's just the idea of fracturing you know something into planes that aren't logical. Yeah. While at the same time making something that seems like it should be logical while you're looking at it. And that plays into this other thing that I like to do, which is undermine myself regularly, you know, in the work. Like, uh, there's a a certain logic in my work, structural logic in my work, Mm -hmm. um, that lasts for X amount of time in the painting, and then it will randomly shift to a disruption of that logic
0: could that be uh or maybe we're kind of talking about conceits of a painting but do you mean like uh the logic of a a figure or a character or do you mean the logic of a the landscape the context that they're in or could it be all of these it's all it's really all of that that you you take to a certain point and then you are more than ready to kind of Poke it full of holes, or destroy it altogether, or yeah. okay. Well,
1: okay. I mean, the the poking it full of holes is is in the process, mm. um, not not after an image has been created. It's just a realization that it's much more interesting to disrupt continuity than it is to continue, yeah. you know. Um, and so I try to, you know, if something exists in four parts, I try to make only three parts of it, it mm-hmm. seem. Continuous, and the other you know, part seemed like it was pasted on, uh, which implies a sort of structural, has structural implications of, of um, you know, let's say, um, instability um, built into it. As soon as we don't know whether something is stable or not, yeah. we don't walk on it, you know? Yeah. Uh, we don't live within it, you know? Um, so how do we know that it's not stable? well we there are clues that we have from the rational world that that tell us what is stable you know um, and i I just want to speak to the to the unpredictability of the modern world you know in the world yeah. um, you know so, so there, there are a lot of issues that that are going on simultaneously in, in the work. There's This unpredictability of of um, s- s- uh, s- of um, events occur. What what event will occur next? You know, who knows? Yeah. Um, and and there's the to me sort of the failure of the human being. Um, being inadequate to meet the demands of life mm-hmm. um, which I think we're seeing now playing out in the actual world yeah. you know and um, you know the, the distance away from an ideal an ideal condition which I think to me sort of goes back to distance from what for me was a religious security and then the disappearance of that you know uh
0: desirably you know um do they feel uneasy to you when you're making them i mean maybe you're someone who watches the news every day and therefore a sense of unease is never too far away but when you're making these paintings and when you're dealing with all the precariousness and the tension and you know your themes that are going into the work it, it, are you getting a sense of control out of it and therefore like comfort or do you feel tense or does it change painting by painting?
1: Uh, I'm tight as a drum, you know, in, in the studio. I'm, I'm very anxious, you know, while I'm making these paintings. Really? I mean, I used to have friends that used to talk about how much fun they're having in the studio. I I had no, I had no sense of that.
0: Has that not changed all. over the years? That tight tension. It must. Yeah, uh, you know, it comes and goes. I mean, um, with the world going to hell. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I
1: mean like with transitions that. in my own life. You know, I mean like, like when I, after I retired, I came to work in this studio with a completely different agenda than I had when I was working as part of the academic. Uh, world mm. um, and that had to do with you know uh, funding proposals mm. um, I didn't make enough money as a assistant professor or associate professor or even when I was a full professor I didn't make enough money to be able to engage a level of productivity that I that I desired that I that I really wanted uh, with money out of my own pocket. So I had to write grant proposals Mm -hmm. every year for 23 years. I wrote a grant proposal and the requirements of that grant proposal was that you had to state what you were going to do, how you're going to do it, and what the result was going to be. And when I saw that initially, I thought, man, that is as far from how far away from how I think as a painter Than anything could possibly be, you know, but I realized that somehow I have to change my conceptual approach to doing the work that I want to make
0: Mm -hmm.
1: in ways that I could explain.
0: So you did actually, did you, you were able to do that? I mean, that sounds like, yeah, yeah. And did it weirdly bring with it a sense of calm or, or yeah. What was that? What was that experience like to, well, it was
1: aggravating first of all, to have to do it for twenty, twenty three 23 years. Sure. Sure. And, um, um, but you know, I found ways of thinking about it. My work's always embraced pop culture, um, you know, um, print matter, uh, print imagery, advertising, iconography, uh landscape my own my own na- life narrative all of that stuff and uh if i could break it down into wanting to access these things and and research these uh things that were outside of my own life experience mm-hmm. um, uh, i could write convincingly about what i was what i wanted to
0: achieve, without feeling like you were putting walls around opportunity, right. and and sort of bowing before limitations, right? Okay, right.
1: Okay. So, so that's the way I worked for
0: twenty three years, and that changed once you.
1: When I I thought to myself, like immediately before I retired, I can't wait to be out of this sort of concept of of funding and and grant writing mm-hmm. in academia, because that's a different animal than grant writing out into the out in the um, art support system, you know, world. <coughs> but I wanted to go back to the idea of working spontaneously without a clue as to what my goal was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I finally developed this studio space and started working in here and I had detached from Uh, the university intellectual process, conceptual, you know, uh, aspect, uh, it was unnerving to me because I had been 20, 25, 30 years without thinking spontaneously entirely, you know, from the the outset, you know, uh, thinking about developing with, no idea of what was going to initiate that painting.
0: So interesting. Uh, let me jump in and say, are we cl- closing a loop here? Because early on in the interview, you had mentioned that there are three, um, you can explain your career in these three right, tenses. Right. And is that the second one, which was this uh, knowing what you're going to make? I mean, I know you do not right, but right. okay, okay. Yeah, so, the second the- phase
1: was was basically the academic Years Mm -hmm. at the University of Wisconsin. Which were
0: academic, interestingly, not because of teaching or the school. It's that you were writing these, uh, uh, submitting these grants or applications for grants. Very interesting. And then the third one is Is since retirement. Is since retirement. Where you're kind of looking at a canvas again, a blank canvas, and it's freaky.
1: But, yeah, I have to realize that between, you know, between the um, late 70s, and 2021, 2020, uh-huh. there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of things made that I made. Uh-huh. And they had basically a range of non-repeating iconographies, hmm. but all of them by necessity had to be in one way or another self-referential
0: Why? Because you wanted it that way or it was inevitable, that it was that way or. It was the
1: only story I had to tell, you know, what story am I supposed to tell? You know, I mean, um, it's what I know. It's what disturbs me the most, Hmm. you know, my own life, um, my own life choices, um, to some degree, um, you Know my own perceptions of what my life was like, which may or may not be true, yeah. Um, that all interested me is, I mean, to become self absorbed mm. to me is a goal, you know. Um, as an artist, you know, mm-hmm. anyway, uh, I think that's what we do,
0: why we do it, you know. Um, I mean, there are
1: the, the there's no blanket truth. No, no, know, no, no to
0: that And we're going to leave it there for today, my dear listener. Remember, the conversation will continue next Thursday with episode two of my conversation with the artist T.L. Selene. In the meantime, if you'd like to find out more about his work, as always, check out the uh, links in the episode description. That'll take you to his website and his Instagram where you can find out more about his work. And if you'd like to find out more about my work, you can check out my website at isaacman.com, spelled with two A's and two N's. If you'd like to get in touch, please write into artmatterspodcast gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can leave a review or a star rating. And otherwise, just check back here next Thursday for the continued conversation with the artist T.L. Selene. Take care.